Welcome to another episode of Intriguing Beings with me, Rue Chater. Episode 8 with Mark Shin. I've got a great interview for you today, especially if you enjoy hearing about board design and how some of the equipment that we use in kiteboarding gets created. Mark's been a kiteboarder since the very beginning. He was one of the early masters of the sport, a double world champion and the only person to win both the PKRA Tour and the KPWT Tour, as they were known at the time. No one else has achieved that. He was the only person to do it. And since then, his career has taken a different path and he's been working on shapes and creating kiteboards with some of the most popular designs on the market um, being attributed to his genius. Uh, He's a very humble guy. He probably won't even like me saying that about him, that I've just said he's a genius. But he is very good at creating some of the best kiteboards on the planet. So in this interview, we do go a little bit techie and we do talk about design quite a lot. But I think it's an important subject and it's a good conversation. And it's interesting to see how much passion he still has for creating these boards and working on the shapes and developing something better in a market that I feel has sometimes stagnated. You know, a lot of twin tip shapers and designers and creators are just churning out similar shapes to last year, whereas Mark's always pushing and trying different things, new materials, uh, tweaks with the flex, tweaks with the shapes. And it really shines through that, you know, a good twin tip can be an amazing kite board to use. We also talk about foiling. Um, He's really getting into designing hydrofoil shapes now. So we chat a little bit about that, about his CNC processes, about how he creates prototypes. So yeah, it's a bit of a tech fest, but it's a really interesting one. And I think you'll enjoy it. And what really shines through is Mark's passion um, for creating something better and for making kiteboarding better, not just for the pros, but for everybody. Some of his latest shapes are more beginner-inspired twin tips and he really just wants everybody to get out on the water and enjoy riding and have a good time and that really shines through in this interview i really hope you enjoy it um thanks so much for the people that have rated this five stars on the apps i notice i've got a few ratings coming up on itunes now so thank you very much for that as ever if you'd like to share these episodes with your friends either on social media or just by telling them down the pub um, that'd be hugely appreciated and you know all the positive feedback that's been coming in and a few comments about how I can improve things as well would be great when I recorded the first set of these interviews it was in the summer before I broke my leg so I didn't really uh, think about them too much and now I've had a little bit of time to edit them I've been working on how I'm going to record the audio so I'm actually just about to start recording a new batch because I've nearly run out of the recordings that I've had and uh, hopefully the sound quality is going to be a little bit better. I mentioned the sound quality on this one because it was recorded at the Kite Surfing Armada. Um, we're in one of Mark's friend's camper vans which unfortunately was a little bit close to the music uh, stage which pipes up every now and then so you can hear that in the background obviously being a camper van a couple of people wandered in and got kite surfing equipment to go for sessions and things like that so i've tried to edit out um most of the interruptions i still think this one's a really enjoyable conversation and hopefully you really enjoy it too i'm sat with mark shin uh who is a world champion kite boarder uh businessman runs his own company selling kite boards and a very passionate surf foiler now. I think it would be safe to say my wife is a business person and runs the company. I just play with toys. <laughs> <laughs> but you've um, you've had quite a long career 
of kiteboarding. Are you kind of a bit over it now, or are you still kind of as passionate about going and riding as you were back in the day? No, I'm still as passionate as I was, but in different ways. Yeah. So in the, back in the early days, it was all about uh, new gear and new tricks and finding the possibilities. And then for sure, we went to, uh, I, for sure, I stopped competing, I think, in 2005. Um, but then I started my journey uh, with uh, Nabile kiteboarding and I was, I was managing that brand for some years. Yeah. And then I um, decided to go out and do shin kiteboarding on my own. So it's been a, a journey. Yeah. Um, and for each stage, I have a, a new passion and a new excitement for it. But for sure, it's not the same passion and excitement I had in 1999, but it's... Yeah. I'm still as excited and I'm still frothing for a session when the conditions are good. Yeah, when it gets good. And you've, um, you mentioned you shin, uh, you've just recently set up a factory in Poland, right? And that's where you're spending a lot of your time, your wife. Yeah, so. I relocated two and a half years ago. I, I lived nearly 20 years in Tenerife and okay. two and a half years ago we relocated to the south of Poland, which might not seem a natural uh, progression, but... Um, you know, after 20 years of basically living the dream, the dream changes a bit, yep. and, uh, and I don't have the burning need to be on the beach every single day for eight hours. Uh, and it just seemed a better place for us to be for our business and for our future and my family growing up. And yeah. So yeah. So for now, we're located in the south of Poland, um, which is uh, which is very interesting. It gives, certainly gives me a fresh perspective on everything. And I think it's safe to say that in the summer, I actually more hours living in the south of Poland than I did living on the beach in Tenerife. Really? Is that because when you're on the beach in Tenerife, you were like, oh, it's not quite good enough? Or the you, There's always an excuse not to go when you can go right every there. day. Yeah? It's like, oh, I'm going to wait for the tide, or the waves aren't really good, or it's not quite windy enough, or I need to do this. And But uh, it, it takes me about six hours to drive to the nearest coast from where I'm living now. Wow. So by the time I get there... You're going. Things seem pretty focused. <laughs> Doesn't matter how bad it is. Seems a shame like to drive six hours and then not go kiting. Yeah. Back. yeah that's Although I did, I, my record till now was to drive six hours, arrive on the spot, find it was blowing 45 knots, and I was supposed to be testing foils. And I tried for about 15 minutes, stopped, looked at the forecast, decided it was only getting windier, and drove home again. So I think that's my record is 12 hours driving for 15 minutes wow. kiting. But that's pretty good dedication. <laughs> <laughs> I that's pretty stupid, but well, yeah, it depends which way you look at it. Yeah, it? I think I tend to study the forecast a bit more carefully now than uh, yeah after that episode and make sure you're going to score it pretty good. You've got some lakes near you though that you can kite mm. on, right? So I have. There's a lot of lakes in the south of Poland, and there's a surprising number of kiters there. Yeah, um, and I don't want to like bang on about foiling all the time, but. <laughs> Uh, on the lakes, it's it's the saviour. In fact, in many occasions, I would rather fall on the lake than the open sea, because the the surface of the water is much flatter. Yeah. Um, and it's uh, at, you know, falling is also more fun, and then the water is flatter and not too choppy. Yeah. So and and you just don't feel the gusts. So on a twin tip, it's really laboured and hard work, and on the foil, it feels like an ideal day. Yeah. So you're not getting pushed around by the wind as much when it's a bit gusty, it's just mm. kind of all gliding along and nice. Yeah, the problem on a twin tip or a surfboard is in the lulls you stop. 
Um, and that's what's so frustrating in grusty conditions is stopping and going and stopping and going. But on the foil, you're always going. Yeah, because you've got so, the apparent wind and the foil you've got yeah, the glide. So you really don't notice it so much. So it's, uh, it's a very good solution for that. I guess that's the one, you know, talking about foiling again, but it's the one benefit of that side of the sport is it's opened up a lot of spots. You know, kiting on a lake on a twin tip in the south of Poland probably wasn't that much fun, but people still did it because they wanted to kite, whereas now yeah. they can foil and it opens up something for being a lot more fun. It's, it's, uh, this is why foiling is gaining so much in popularity because it does open up so many possibilities. It's, uh, it's not about fashion, it's about hours on the water. Yeah. You know, when you do have time to go, not losing time because there wasn't enough wind or... Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, I, I, that's what excites me so much. It's just it, a good twin tip session is a good twin tip session and a good wave session is a good wave session and a good foil session is neither of the others. Yeah. So it's something more, not yeah. just a different toy for the same conditions. It's another sort of few quality, even more hours on the water. Yeah, I remember a few years ago I was messing around with wake skates and I found it very funny, but I hesitated to ever actually produce a wake skate in the in the relay or the shin range because I felt like a good wake skate day is a good twin tip day. Right. So it's not so a it's not an addition. Right. It's just a swapping of toys, we, and it didn't excite me. But you know, we're, now we're talking about a real what we call it game changer. It's like a game addition. Yeah. It's like more more toys for more good days on the water. Yeah. And when you um you mentioned you know when you sort of finish riding professionally and stop competing and things like that you went and got the, the job at Nobile you were creating their board range for them right that um, it's a bit uh, it, probably not quite right to say a job at Nobile I actually wanted to start my own board brand okay and I went to uh, the Nobile factory in Poland um, because they in, they had been making boards for a few key brands before that yeah and I'd worked a bit with them in with my previous sponsors and I, I went to the factory there to set up my own brand and I talked to Darius, the owner of the factory, and, and we decided that together we could do something better, faster and bigger than I could do it on my own or he yeah. could do it on his own, as I had many contacts inside the industry and, yeah, you had the and, a, and a name, and he had the technology and the factory to produce it. And it was, I mean, it was wildly successful. We went from being an unheard of brand to the biggest uh, 20th brand in the oh, world in two years. When those boards came out, they were mind-blowingly good. Like the triple six and the triple five, and we got them for test, and it was just you know some really incredible. But this was not a this was not a technology I invented. This was developed by the Nobile yeah. factory. But uh, let's I tested the bores and fine tuned the shapes with them, and then yeah. we we kind of defined what we wanted from them and brought them to the market. So it was a, a collaborative effort. A collaborative effort. Do you, do you are you involved? You know, how do you design a, a twin tip? You know, how how do you go about it? Are you working in CAD, or have you got designers that work in CAD for you? Um, or twin tip yes i have a 3d designer that works with me all the time and we have structure engineers and but uh to be honest twin tips uh certainly made in in the abs press technology i consider this more to be a summation of two-dimensional pieces put together okay um you have a rocker you have an outline you have a flex profile and you can tweak all of them individually to to create a board so when i design a board most of the time, designing a board is is making improvements to something you've already done, yeah, and making tweaks. And what I like about the way that we can work is that we can change because 
effectively a, a prototype is a serial board, but just we only made one of them. Yeah. We can change one thing at a time. So I can take a board, I can say, okay, it needs uh, two millimeters more rocker, it needs a little bit more flex, it needs, but I can change one thing and know that I have the identical board with one thing changed. Because the problem always in prototyping is when you change more than one thing, you, don't you know can't be really sure what it was that had the effect. And many times in my life I've been surprised that what I thought was going to happen didn't happen. And what I thought was irrelevant was relevant. So for me the process of developing twin tips is very much a, a step methodical step-by-step -step process, which means a lot of prototypes and a lot of testing but That's I like to think a long time, right, to do it, it like it that does right? but I like to think that at the end of it we can be fairly sure we're always going in a positive direction yeah um, and it means that when we come to uh, decide on the production of a board for the next year in fact what I'm doing is taking my best prototype up to that day and starting production on it yeah um, but in truth, the R&D effort is, is a 52-week-a-year process. So one week after we've gone to production with a new model, I, I would like to think that I have a better one in, in my office. Hands, ready yeah. for testing but sometimes it doesn't work. Yeah? Some, I'm, I'm very um, consequent in testing the production models against prototypes. And sometimes you make a bunch of prototypes and you really think you've made progress, and then you go back to the production, production and realize you haven't. You've just gone sideways. Um, and I think this is really important in a brand to keep double checking that you're going forwards because sometimes what feels like a forward step is in fact a sideways step and, uh, and, then and isn't progress. And then you go into production. And, then and I think we've all had it um, in aspects of life where we've had a product that we've loved in, in anything. It could be a phone or a kiteboard or a bike or anything. And we've bought the next years and went, actually, I'm not really sure it's better. Yeah. Uh, I like the one I had more before. So I do try to be very consequent, and, and very often it happens that I decide that the second year's production is, is going to be unchanged, just a graphic change, because I don't feel like I have something yeah, your Your direction better. hasn't made in, enough progress yeah. to sort of, you know, warrant changing the board over. I mean, twin tips are a, are a kind of funny one, and, and you've, you know, been passionate about them for many, many years. I've had a sort of love-hate affair with them where I used to ride twin tips a lot and then I got into surfboards and then I got into foiling and I've actually just recently fallen back in love with twin tips and I think it's easy to overlook the design aspects and the quality of a twin tip. Like a lot of people will just go, oh, it's a board, you know, I like the colours mm. or it doesn't weigh much, but they can really make a difference to your session, like a good twin tip over a bad twin tip. Yeah, right? absolutely. I, I think... Uh... I think the people that say uh, nothing's happening in twin tips are the people that aren't doing any testing anymore. Yeah. Um, there's there's such a world of possibilities, and there's so many pieces to this jigsaw, which is a twin tip, that there's always something to change. Yeah. Know? There's uh, and and every piece is interconnected. Yeah. Like a change in technology can affect the performance, or a change in materials can affect the technology, which will change the performance and. So it's like for everything that changes, possibly outside your control, it affects everything and you, you have to go back to it and start again. But I, I actually, that's what motivates me. Yeah. To is, keep to, is to keep going. Perfection. So, What's your favorite twin tip you've ever ridden? I guess it's one of the last one I just did. I tend to, I tend to segment my, I'm developing boards all the time, but as we get nearer and nearer the launch date of the board, obviously I'm more focused on what's coming up. And we tend to split our launches into twice a year. In the spring we launch the freeride boards. 
and in the autumn we launched the freestyle boards. Um, partly because if I'm testing freeride boards and then I throw a freestyle board in the mix, it just confuses things. Because then you go, well, actually, you ride the freestyle board and you go, actually, it's really harsh. And then you go back on the freeride board and you go, actually, it's missing some grip and it's not edgy and, and it kind of mixes things up, especially in my head, where yeah. I'm like, try to get into a space of what I want this board to do. So I, I try to keep my testing a little bit focused on, okay, now I'm in my freeride headspace, so let's do the freeride boards. Yeah. And when it's finished, then I need to take a week or two just going back to the normal freestyle boards to get back into the how they ride kind of the groove and and it's possible I won't ride a freeride board for three four months because I'm focused on freestyle or um, but um, well I the probably the favorite board is the new Bronx CRB4 because I made the first Bronx some years ago um, and switched to using a balsa wood core for it which which uh, balsa wood is much lighter but much softer yeah. um, and requires the use of carbon to not have a board that's too soft. But of course the weight is really nice and yeah. the feeling is really nice. But it's been a bit of a... The first year I really loved the performance of the board but maybe a few more broke than I would have liked. So the second year we made it a bit stronger but somehow the magic was lost a little bit. was not quite there. And then I, then I switched to a different technology um, with the moulds and I felt like we were on the cusp of having what I wanted, but not, not quite there. You know? And bearing in mind, deadlines come and go. You have to stick to your deadlines. So yeah. sometimes it does happen that I don't really have exactly what I want when we start production, but that's it, what you've got to have do. to keep going forwards. And this year, I felt like I made the board that I wanted to make on year two, but now it's year four. <laughs> and you got there. And I really feel I got there. I think we got the, the weight is good. The weight is very good at around two kilos. The board is amazingly plush. It you just it's like going through butter. No matter how harsh the water conditions are, it's so smooth, and uh, and yet it's it's still lively and a very uh, interactive ride. So I I would say this is the board I'm most happy with, but in no small part because it felt so hard to get there. Yeah. So it's been a long process and a lot of effort. So yeah. now you're there, you've got a nice reward out of it. Mm. Do you um when you're working on these boards? Do you sort of find that it's hard to, you've got a big range, so is it hard to give each board the focus that you need to get it to where you want to be, or do some years boards stay the same and you're working on like a handful of that range? Because when you look at the shim range, it's quite, it's quite big now. Well, as a specialist board producer, I feel like we have to make boards for everyone. Yeah. Because I feel like it's a bit of a cop-out to say we're a specialist board manufacturer and we only make three models. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we do have a big range, and, and I try to be quite focused on them. But sometimes... I don't have. I haven't had feedback from customers saying they would like something changed, and I haven't felt a need to change something. A good example here is the King G, where I think in the last two or three years the the shape hasn't changed at all, because I haven't. I've played with it a few times, but I haven't found something better, and I haven't actually found something in the board that I really want to change. Yeah. Um, and as I said before, I'm not a great believer in changing things just for the sake of changing, changing them. So, but you know. Sometimes this year we, for the first time, I developed, a, let's say, a door-style lightwind twin tip. Okay. I've never made one before because I never really understood why you would want a board like this. Yeah. Because a skimboard or a foil will always go in slightly less wind, and, and I never understood it. 
But uh, I went, my wife um, only learned to kiteboard a year or two ago, and I went okay. on holiday with her in Egypt, um, into Hamatra in the south of Egypt, where the water is quite shallow for a long way. And it's a big station, there are probably 150 kiters on the kite station there. Uh, it was a typical day, everyone was out on 10 meter kites or 12 meter kites, you know, everyone was having fun, and as very often happens in Egypt, at lunchtime the wind started to drop. And um, pretty much everyone came in, blew up a 17, 18 meter kite and took a kind of door style board and went back out. And it occurred to me that when these guys are on a, or ladies are on a 12 meter and a twin tip, they're going out and back and having a great time. And when they take their 18 meter and their door style board, they're going out and back and having a fantastic time. It's the same thing for them. They're having fun. Yeah, yeah they're on their own day, they're kiting. They're never going to learn to foil. They, they don't have the desire or the time and probably even the skills to go through that process. They just want, they're on holiday or they're on their spot, they want to kite. End of story, yeah? They just want to go out and ride. And it was the first time it really clicked to me what this board is for, yeah? And when you say, yeah, but you can't ride it toe side and you can't do a Moab 5 on it, and they don't they care. They're not going to do that anyway. Just cruising up the the person down. for this board wants to go cruising upwind, downwind, like out and back, and maybe some back rolls, and it's an epic session. Yeah. So, um, for the first time this year, I turned my attention to this board in, in our range, we call it Bernard. And, um, and in the development of this, when I really said to myself, what does this board need to have? Yeah, what are the key features for the customer on this board? And, it, and the spin-off from that program is that probably the King G will change now. Because okay. the King G is our, let's say, extra large twin tip. I always made our light wind twin tip was not geared to be the lightest wind twin tip possible. It was designed to be a light wind but performing twin tip. Yeah. We can do things on it still. And the development of the Bernard program means that I'm quite sure that the King G will change now because some of the things I learned in that program will will come across. So for the first time in, in three or four years, that board is going to develop. That's quite interesting. I, I get where you're coming from with those door-style boards, because I've, I've tested them a few times, and they're good at what they do. I'd probably never ride one because I foil, but mm. you're exactly right. There's a bunch of people out there who, while we wax lyrical about foiling, it's just probably not going to be for them. Mm. You know, you've got to be able to have that want to go back to being a beginner again and that's the yeah. precise reason there's still people that windsurf that never learned to kite because they didn't want to go back to being a beginner and learning to kite because they were yeah. windsurfers. Which I can quite understand. Uh, one of my uh, one of my friends that was on this trip was a, a five-star general in the Polish army in NATO. He's 75 years old and uh, he loves to go on his kite trip with his friends. Uh, he's not going to learn to foil. Huh? He's not going to learn to ride a strapless board either. It's, yeah. uh, he, and he doesn't want to. Yeah, he's no? quite happy getting the buzz from And he's surfing. very happy, and he's very happy now with his Bernard riding in two knots less wind than he could before because it's another day when he's not sat on the beach watching other people. Yeah, he's able to get out there. Um, you, your factory in Poland is quite a new venture. Um, how did that kind of come about? And I guess that must have been quite tricky. You mentioned your wife. Um, yeah, this is this is um, things, but it must have been this is an association. Yeah. It's not strictly speaking our factory. Okay. We we um uh about two and a half years ago we had an opportunity with some close friends. Um, they had the skills and the knowledge and the financing to start a new factory. Okay. Um, but as with all things, until you actually start making product, it's very hard to find customers. 
And um, because we knew them very closely, we agreed to be the, let's say, the launch customer for the factory, okay. which meant they could set up the factory knowing that they had production. Um, and use you as an example. And we to are, get more it's a very here. close relationship. Until uh, until a couple of months ago, the Shin warehouse and offices were inside the inside the factory itself. Oh, wow. So we have a very close relationship. And in the meantime, we have started a spin-off business uh, between us making molded composite parts, hydrofoil wings and, and other composite molded pieces. So we, we whilst it's not directly our factory, we're very closely linked yep. to the Loxy factory. Does that mean that you can make changes easier than before? Has it affected the way that you can run your business? Or? Absolutely, because the technology and the materials is so critical to what we do that being on-site being able is to things go much faster. Yeah. yeah, and and everyone knows that it's uh, if you can spend time uh, with the engineers and make the adjustments as you see it, um, it. You can make a twin tip if you're set up and ready to go. You can pretty much make a twin tip from start to finish in two hours. Wow! From raw materials to ready to ready Literally to go. Wrap it in. Yeah. So. So there is a benefit in extremely rapid prototyping, you know. And the better you know the technology, the more possibilities there are. There are, um, and the more we realise there are different ways to do things. Yeah. And it works very well for for both of us, the factory and ourselves, being so connected because uh, they can come to us and say they have quiet period for production, and we can shift our production around to fit, um, making sure that they're working to capacity and it's yeah. convenient for. Shin too, so this is a very a good step say a symbiotic relationship. And do you get all your hydrofoil parts made there as well? No, not separate? at all. This is this uh, this kiteboard ski snowboard technology is very specific for okay. that. Um, this this composite molding company I told you about, Sode Company, uh, we formed this um, in fact for doing R and D projects. So doing. Uh, projects for other companies who don't have the technology or the specialists they need to, to do things. Okay. Um, and the hydrofoil was, was, we designed it and uh, we manufactured through this, this company. So it makes it a little bit different to be working like that, but I guess the hydrofoil stuff is so specific. And you know, so Shin is a kiteboard brand and we wish to keep it as a kiteboard brand. Um, so it made more sense to... When we and you know Sony Company is doing many things apart from making yep. uh, hydrofoils and kiteboard parts, so it was better to to keep this separate. As someone who's you know you you're a pretty accomplished waterman really because you windsurf um, to a very high standard before you got into kiteboarding. Um, you know you're now into your surf foiling, sub foiling as well. Um, is there sort of one sport in particular that you would say, okay, if I could only choose this one sport, that's the one I would do? I think like many, many people, if I had to choose one sport, it would be surfing. It was yep. my first love. And, uh, it's the most frustrating and most satisfying sport that I know. Yeah. Um, if I had to do one, one trip a year, It'd be a surf it would trip. be a surf trip. Um, but you know, it's it's increasingly hard to find good surf conditions. But first of all, good surf conditions are hard to find, and secondly, the surfing it's it's a huge sport now. Yeah, the spots are crowded, you know, with a lot of localism problems, and it's harder and harder to score those great days for surfing. So, 
but that doesn't <clears throat> saying that surfing would be my first and last love doesn't like degrade my passion for the for other, other things. Sports, yeah, it's just I love to be in the water doing something, and uh, it's just that yeah, surfing is surfing is special. The core. It's interesting. A few people have said that to me, and I think you know uh, it was Pete Cabrina actually uh, who said, well, the the key word in all of those is the surf, windsurf, kite surf, you know, sup surf. Mm surf foiling it all has the word surf in it and that's the core that mm. everything's based around so if you can only choose one then go there's no the sport place. where you feel more connected to the environment and conditions and surfing yeah, it's just you and your surfboard yeah no no extra vehicles or tools to help you it's just uh it's maybe body surfing is more pure but but you know yeah, after that surfing fun. is <laughs> <laughs> surfing is uh it's like as honest as you can get. And, you know, one of the attractions of surfing is it's hard. It's hard physically to paddle the board and it's hard to get yourself into the right spot. It's hard to choose the right wave. It's hard to paddle in and stand up. And, you know, actually surfing the wave is the easiest part of the whole, the whole process. The whole process. You know, I know many people that tow them into a wave with a jet ski and, and they rip, but ask them to paddle in and they're floundering in the wrong place. They're getting cut off by people, you know. Yeah. They're struggling to stand up at the right moment, and it's uh, it's this is one of the beauties of surfing. It's hard, so when you get it right, it's very rewarding. Yeah, um, and it always makes me think when people say, oh, "I don't want to learn to," for instance, "I don't want to learn to hydrofoil." I don't want to go back to being a beginner again. And but very often, it's the things that are hard to do that make it so much fun. Right? Yeah, I'm sure no small part of my passion for kite foiling is because I struggled for the first month. Yeah. Love it. Being you know? a good beginner all over again. And you only have to look at the videos that you see online. Generally, people put videos online as something they're proud of. And when you see a lot of videos of people kiting up and down on a hydrofoil, that's probably because it's not as easy as it looks. Yeah, they're proud of <laughs> and they're proud of doing it. And, forwards. and um, the same, all the videos online you see of people foiling uh, tack, right? to, to foil all the way through a tack and out the other side. You can tell by the number of videos online of people doing it that they're extremely proud of it. 100%. Which means yeah. it's not easy. <laughs> no, it's definitely not easy. I've been trying for about four years and I still can't consistently get them. I had, <laughs> I had a period in Cabarete when, uh, two years ago and I was like, right, I'm coming back from this four-month trip to Cabarete and I'm going to be foiling tax. That's what I'm going to do. So I would go out and I would brain myself like... I thought, okay, I'll break it down. I'll just do it in one direction. So I'm not confusing myself. I'm going both ways. So I'm just going to go one direction, foiling tack, foiling tack, foiling tack. The other way I'd jive, foiling tack, foiling tack. And I think I had one session where after like weeks and weeks and weeks of practice, it finally clicked. And I was doing maybe 90% coming out. And I was going, oh, finally, I've learned it. Like I've succeeded. And then I went out the next day and I didn't do any. <laughs> and since then, I don't think I've had a day where I was ever, it clicked that much. So you're right. It's probably one of the hardest things out there at the moment to do like it is incredibly difficult and I guess that challenge is what makes it rewarding and that's what makes you want to go back and and work at it and things like that so yeah it's an interesting one how did you um get into foiling because obviously you know you're Mr Twintip reluctantly 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 because it was all going on I, I think I started foiling four years ago three years ago certainly I was still living in Tenerife at the time yeah and I was watching it, it was getting a bit more popular, but I was like, don't see the point in this. No, I'm not convinced about this at all. 
It was because, you know, footing's a strange sport in kiting, as it's an upside-down sport. It started with racing. Yeah. What normally happens is a sport is born, and it grows, and the performance gets tweaked and tweaked, and then eventually yeah, it arrives in a competitive racing. format, whereas foiling started as racing, and it's trickling down to the mainstream, but in certainly when I learned almost. to foil, it was, uh, it was race equipment, which is extremely hard to foil on. And um, I was ignoring it, saying I don't believe in it, and then at one point I said, you know what, I, I, I need to learn it just to understand it. To understand it and make a really informed decision. decision. Am I going to, is <laughs> Am this I worth pursuing this? or not? And uh, and there were some guys on the Isle of Wight, uh, Carbon 6, making foils, yeah. and they, they very kindly sent me a foil to learn on. In fact, I started going at 7 o'clock at night when all the windsurfers and kiters were in the bar. Oh, really? I was so doing no my stealth mission at night. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, <laughs> and I absolutely struggled with it. It was, I think it was uh, for sure five or six sessions before I actually Cause it, got I mean, on the foil at El all. El Medano is where you were in Tarifa, yeah, right? So that's Tenerife, not, oh, not, yeah, Tenerife, yes, yeah, sorry. And that's not the easiest spot to learn at El Medano. You've got the waves. It's got windy, it's windy, choppy, it's there's choppy, waves. There's a lot going on there. There's reef everywhere. Yeah, that's not the easiest environment. No, learn. so I, I kind of forced myself to do it, and I said that until I can do it with some kind of consistency, I'm, uh, I'm going to reserve judgment. And, uh, yeah, and... and after some time, I was like, ah, probably there's something there, but it's it's hard. Yeah. It's really hard. And um, and in fact, then uh, we decided that we should go that way with Shin. Um, but I felt very much from the start that we needed to offer hydrofoils as well as boards yeah. for hydrofoils. And uh, I made an agreement with uh, Nicholas from Zico Foils that we would supply his foils with, Your with boards. our boards. And um, and I got the first Zico foils from him, and was blown away by how much easier it was. Um, and in fact, looking back, I wouldn't recommend anyone to learn on those foils now because they're still they're still hard. They're still hard, but, but it was easier infinitely than easier than what I learned on. And and um, so we were supplying the Zico foils, and that was when I decided that we should, as Shin, we should uh, start looking at it. We should start uh, working on our own foils um, because I I had a feeling. That this is really going to go somewhere, and this sport is has potential. Yeah. Um, but to be honest, it wasn't until I made the first prototype of the P wing that having the slightest inkling that it was going to go that way towards much bigger wings. Yeah. Um, and uh, I actually made the first P wing as a paddleboard foil. Okay. And um, <clears throat> I took it on a photo shoot because I needed to test it, and there were no waves at all. Uh, so I said, okay, so I have to, I'm going to go kiting on it because I want to test it. And yeah. I went like 100 meters off the beach, came back, like ran into my computer and mailed the guy and said, guys, this make a mold for it. <laughs> like, <laughs> this was already March and uh, we were about, we were photo shooting to launch the new range. And everything was already in production. And I was mailing the guy saying, you have to stop everything. You have this to make a mold of this. This is it. I was like, this is the... This is this is the missing link. This is the half an hour learned to foil. Because that that wing, you know, people who don't know what it is, it's it's you know it's a front end hydrofoil wing, and it's been incredibly popular because it is so easy. It's right? because I think it was probably was and probably well, probably is still now the easiest foil on the market to learn on. If you can ride a twin tip reasonably well, you can get your first foiling experiences in the first hour on it. So I think it suddenly opened the door to many people. I think a lot of people. 
in a lot of areas, you know, hydrofoiling was uh, started in a lot of places by, let's call them the early adopters, the yep. better level of foilers who were also the first guys to ride strappers, first guys yep. to have a surfboard, the more advanced riders looking for something new. And um, like me, they all ended up with race foils and they all struggled, struggled with it. And uh, let's say the less able kiteboarders on the spot watched them and went, that looks terrible. Good Lord, the guy's a really good kiter and he's fighting for his life. It's nothing for me. Yeah. And um, and I think it needed something like the P-foil where suddenly guys were going, oh, he's foiling and I'm a better kiter than him. So yeah, I must be able to do I that. I must be able to do it as well. And I think that's what the sport really needed. I'm not saying that the P-foil was the, the catalyst, but I think in many areas it was. It was the, what pushed people over the edge. Yeah, and opened to things say, up. You know, a lot of people knew the benefits of hydrofoils, just... Just thought it was just incredibly thought impossible. it was out of their reach. Yeah, so. yeah, that's interesting. And now you've got the the new surf wing that yeah. you've been working on. Yeah, um, that's quite an exciting project. Yeah, um, I was. Uh, we don't really know what the limits are, so it's very new that sport, isn't it? So you're still like in that inception phase. Yeah, if we went back to what we were kiting on in. 98, 99, 2000, it's completely different to what we're riding now. So the potential is that what we're looking at as surf foils now will be completely different in yeah. 15 years. I made time. this I made this Mega K wing um, again with a view to surf and subfoiling and, and I tested it like that first and was like, it's working very well. We, we made a few prototypes in this one. Uh, what impressed me most was the lift is fantastic, but it, the turning ability of it is really is really amazing compared to the other surf foils I've tried. Um, but then uh, I also tried it kiting. You know, one of the benefits of testing foils kiting, even if they're not designed for kiting, is the fact that you you have a constant thing. You you yeah. stand on it and you foil. Yeah. And I can look at my GPS numbers. I can take my feeling. I can yeah. balance the foil properly with the wing angles, etc. And I'm surfing and paddleboarding. There's a lot going on. It can be hard to yeah so hard to, to get that feeling you only yeah. have a few seconds when you're up so so, so i took it I, in fact i took it kiting just because i wanted to tweak the angles and and get it balanced and working nicely and i realized that it does have quite a lot of benefits for kiting as well um you can foil in light winds on most foils but that one it starts to foil so early that it's really easy to get going in light wind yeah, you're like five knots and you're up, right? It's, yeah, it's pretty much, you pretty much never ride the board. You can go from, most of the time you go from sitting in the water to riding the fall in one, straight away. one go. Because yeah? it just pops up so quick. And um, tacking and jibing in light winds is a, is a, a delicate Hard. skill. <laughs> and if you come off the foil, it's a real effort to get going again. And it just makes it easier because yep. it, you can go really slow. And to be honest, you can be really... Uh, Heavy footed and clumsy. Yeah, it's kind and of still, like a, and still keep it's going like having the training it. wheels on, isn't it? So you yeah. can almost learn to foiling jive and foiling tack on one of these huge mm -hmm. wings on a kite, and then when you go on to like a normal wing, you've got that skill set and the mindset, and you've yeah. been able to practice the movements and get the muscle memory. So for me, that was quite exciting. I wouldn't say it's the only kite wing you need because for me, I, as soon as it gets a little bit windier, I prefer a smaller, faster wing. Yeah. Um, but certainly on our trip, recent trip to Ireland, it was pretty impressive how versatile it is. It's very good surf wing. It's a very good sub wing. Uh, it's a it's a very nice light wind yeah. kai wing. 
we're playing around a little bit with kiting and waves now on foils and it's it's working very nicely for that um, because for all these things you need the ability to keep foiling at slow speed and that's really critical have you ever had any um i guess training in the art of designing these things and stuff like that because no. you, you're not, not a nautical engineer or no. anything like that but you're an incredibly talented um board designer and shaper and i guess are you shaping these i am not a shaper well? at all i i i have shaped boards but i'm not the guy to stand there with a planer and a block of foam yeah um i worked many years with a with a delight in terry yep. very talented shaper and he still makes my custom boards for me um but uh I think if I had to pinpoint something, I would say that I have a very sensitive pair of feet and I can feel <laughs> the differences in equipment and and I think I'm reasonably good at isolating what I want from a piece of equipment Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and then working towards that goal. Uh, for foils, no, I have no, no uh, official training in it. I've done an awful lot of reading and um, we said from the start that we would, uh, rather than taking an expensive designer with uh, a lot of aeronautical experience and we decided we would take our budget and do a lot of prototyping and try to make our progress on some theory but also a lot of practice on the water practice experience right. because it is a new area and there, there isn't actually any aspect of hydrofoils or aeronautical design where the wings have no movable surfaces. Uh, plane wings, uh, hydrofoil boats, they have movable control surfaces. You have yeah, flaps so you and ailerons and, and, and you can trim whilst you're in flight. And a kite hydrofoil, this is one of the only foils I know in existence where the only trimming is done by rider weight. Yeah. You, you have no ability to yeah, move the foils like the moths in flight. And things like that, they're all trimmable. Yeah, yeah. So it's just down to the right. So it's, uh, it's not as simple as it seems and there isn't a great deal of theoretical knowledge out there on on what because works so and what new. doesn't work and the other thing you have to consider is we are going incredibly slow incredibly slow you can't find me a plane that flies at 12 kilometers per hour yeah know? it's uh even the, the racers who are going 55 kilometers per hour it's still, still slow very slow and there isn't a great deal of research into going so slow yeah um so for myself, I've actually focused on really older uh, foil sections, which uh, for, let's say, turn of the century foils, because they were going really slow. And for me, I th and you know, and the early planes didn't have movable control services either. Yeah. So I find that that's maybe more relevant for what we're doing than, and let's say, uh, NASA grade <laughs> hypersonic plane profiles and yeah. stuff like that yeah I guess it's kind of very different isn't it? Um, so yeah that's an interesting point about spending the money on prototyping rather than an expensive designer who's got we have done some we have done some backwards uh, analysis and um, <clears throat> and as I suspect it's actually very hard to get the computational analysis to match what we know is happening on the water right um Certainly, with the way we've been looking at it, uh, we're far from being able to predict the performance of a foil from the CFD software. So so it's almost like you make it, and then you have to ride it before you really know how it's going to work. Uh, yeah, well, I think that's very much how it goes in all things. That it's, uh, You have a theory, and you test it, and then you adjust your theory, and you test it. And, um, but <clears throat> we approach the whole 
uh, foil design in the same way I do twin tips and tried to isolate individual features, make a range of uh, test pieces and try to get some kind of understanding of what was happening when you change one yeah, factor. One. And then and then so we made a plan and we moved through the through the pieces like this and it's uh, I think it stood us in, in good stead till now. Um, but it's very hard to know where the sport of hydrofoiling is going, so Yeah. You don't know which direction. You know, it's going. I, I, for sure, our most popular foil was, uh, let's say, an accident. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of uh, it's nice when those good accidents happen, as opposed to the bad accidents. Mm. <laughs> um, so, one of the sort of other things I wanted to ask you about, um, you talked about the board design, and you talked about the factory in Poland and designing the foils. When you're prototyping for the foils do you 3d print and then lay them up with glass to sort of do it no, quickly or are you just coming no. up with straight prototypes you know um it's a uh, we, we cut the wings with uh, cnc okay but um in fact it's not as simple as that uh to make a wing with a cnc let's say you start with a block of material yeah let's let's call this block of material fiberglass for want of a better word okay um, and, and with your CNC, you can cut, let's say, the top half of the wing, at which point you have to turn it over. Yeah. And when you turn it over, you have to, first of all, you have to hold this block still. And secondly, you have to know exactly where it is because the machine is not magic. Yeah? The machine cuts where you tell it to cut. So you need to be sure you know exactly where your wing is. is. Otherwise, you can offset the top and the bottom and end and up with yeah, some kind of Freudian slip. Yeah. So, in fact, to CNC a wing, you have to CNC three times, the top, then let's say a holder for the top, and then you can turn it over and you can CNC the bottom. So it's a, a three-stage operation, and then you have a wing. Um, so because we have a composites molding facility, we actually make a mold for every prototype, which wow. means we, we take a block, we cut the bottom of the wing, we take a second block, we cut, cut the, the top. top of the wing, and, and then, then we can make a, make a molded wing from it which means it's a two-step CNC operation um, because you're never having to turn anything. And the benefit of this is when I have a wing that I like, I can play around with the construction as well because I have the, this uh, temporary mold and it, and you know, they, they last for about 15 or 20 moldings before okay. it's destroyed. So this is a very nice way to proceed because once I think I like a wing, I can make four or five more, I can send them to my team riders, Get their uh, they can try it, you know, and this is a, it's not like the classic prototype where it's, when you have a good one, it's gold dust. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. No one touch it. No one touch <laughs> it. Don't drop it. <laughs> um, so this is, this is a nice way forward. And, and in fact, it's cost effective, but only if you have your own molding facilities, because having cut the, the mold, you yeah. still don't have a ring. You yeah. just have a. And that gets pretty expensive. <laughs> um, it's the classic armada where we're getting interrupted by everybody but that's fine it doesn't matter i'm sure people will understand um so sort of coming around to a sort of an overview i guess so we can kind of wrap up because we've been chatting for a while um you've had a pretty incredible career i mean you're one of the well you as i recall it you're the only male kite surfer to win at the time both uh world titles that were available, which was the was it KB, PKRA and PKRA the K KP KPWT. Yeah, so yeah. you won both of those. That was a hell of an achievement. No one else has done it since, and there was a time when you couldn't do it because both of those tours no longer existed, so that was fine. You've got that in the bank. You've 
um, become a very successful. Um, you say your wife is the business woman, but I mean, I'd argue that you know you're still there, and you obviously it's your testing and it's your drive that has helped that. And obviously, you know, choosing your wife to be the successful <laughs> businesswoman is obviously a sound decision as well. If you look back over your career and sort of where you are now, is there anything that you kind of regret or think, oh, I would have done that differently or oh, I'm kind of it's annoyed very, I did that? It's very fashionable to say no regrets, but it's uh, an impossible situation. Everyone has regrets. Yeah. Everyone looks back and says, I did this with the best intentions, but I wish I hadn't. Um, and yes, there's uh, various points in my life where I wish I'd made a decision uh, different than the one I did. But, you know, I'm happy with where I am at now. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be somewhere other than where I am now. Yeah. So in the, in the sum total, no, I think everything, everything is good. Everything worked out. Yeah. All the right decisions. Well, maybe not all the right decisions, but however those decisions have led you, you're in a happy place where you're... Mm. I remember the classic Morecambe and Wise sketch where he was playing, Morecambe was playing Greek's piano concerto and... And the conductor came over and said, what are you doing? You're playing all the wrong notes. And he turns around and says, listen, I'm playing all the right notes, just not necessarily in the right order. And that's how you kind of feel it's gone. And I think that that's a, a good way to look at life. Yeah, that's pretty um, pretty profound, I guess, that you, know, you, you end up in a place and if you're not happy with it, you, everyone should be happy with it. Most people are happy where they currently are, but you, mm. you don't know whether you made all the right decisions, but hey, it got you to where you are now, so therefore, mm. uh, right at the time or however they work. You've done quite a bit of traveling, obviously, with your um, career as well, you know, as a pro rider for Nash back in the day. Um, is there anywhere that you would like to go back to that you haven't been to for some time? That you think, well, ironically, oh, when I was living in the UK, I used to go a lot to Brandon Bay and Ireland, um, and um, we a, a group of windsurfers used to go there for surfing and windsurfing. And and when I I moved to Tenerife, I never went back because the, you have good conditions on hand and don't have to go anywhere. And and last summer I went back to Ireland, um, pretty much at random, and it reminded me of what I liked about the place. And then I went again this spring with Neil Gent. And we scored 10 days of, uh, do you know, I would like to say 10 days of insane conditions, but I'm not sure it was insane conditions. I think we scored 10 days with a couple of really special days with the, the, right the range of toys we had with us. It was uh, more than an outstanding 10 days. And, um, and I just love the place. It's, uh, I'm past the point of my life where the sun is the most important factor. And... Um, Ireland, the country is beautiful, the conditions are amazing, the people are friendly, It's uh, so I, I want to go back to Ireland. Yeah, that's on your radar at the moment. This is highly on my radar. So I have one final question, and I have this teed up on my phone, and I don't know if it is still on my phone, but um, when I first published my first magazine, which was back in 2004, um, there was a photo of you that I chose for the cover and I'd argue it probably wasn't the best photo I've ever chosen uh, let me put it up here I don't know if you remember it but I wanted to show it to you because uh, it was quite a uh, a classic shall we say and one of the best things about this photo is it kind of it cemented for me what kiteboarding means to so many different people 
and here we go I've got it here so I'm just going to quickly scroll through so I don't know if you've ever seen this but did you know you were yes. flying bombing sorties to Iraq once on the cover of a magazine that I published? I did see this. <laughs> I did see this and I thought it was awesome. It's fantastic, isn't it? So I'm showing Mark there was a, an RAF pilot that was flying sorties in Iraq and he was reading my first kite surfing magazine with Mark Shin on the cover as he was flying to do these sorties and I just thought that was showing a way of how, you know, cool kite surfing can be and, and it if goes you, everywhere. And if you want to learn just how small the kiteboarding market really is um, this was a picture taken at a photo shoot I did with Nash in Barbados yep. this, this was the Nash Thorn this was actually the first ABS technology twin tip that Nash made Right. and they made this board in the Nabile factory in Poland no way so there wow. you go this so there's a, prophecy, a, kind of, for the future. a prophecy of where you're going for the future well I'll put that picture uh with this podcast so when we put it as a blog post people will be able to look at that and enjoy it but I'm glad that you'd seen it because when I got sent that I was just like I'm just blown away that was such a cool <laughs> thing Mark thank you so much for your time thank you that was really interesting and um, I enjoyed that that was good fun episode 8 done and dusted another one um, I'm actually borderline impressed with myself that I've been able to keep up this um, mission of churning out a podcast every week there's quite a lot of work that goes into it um, that I didn't actually realise before I started recording these. So I'm giving myself a slight pat on the back for managing to keep it up for eight episodes. My goal is to keep these running up until Christmas. Um, I'll probably have a couple of weeks break over then. And then I'm off to South Africa in January, hopefully to uh, to get a load more of these recorded as well, because a lot of the pro riders and kite brands and people like that are out there. But I'm also looking at interviewing some different people as well. So some of the next episodes might not be so kite related. Uh, they might just be inspiring and interesting stories. I didn't want to pigeonhole myself into just one sport. Um, we're going to try and get some mountain bikers involved and just people that have got an interesting tale to tell, I guess. So thanks for listening to episode eight. Uh, let's look forward to episode nine, which will be coming out next Monday. As ever, if you enjoyed this episode, please give it a thumbs up, share it with your friends, tell people about it on social media. Help me spread the word. That really does make a big difference because the more people that are listening to these, uh, the more it inspires me to keep creating them and put the effort in. Thanks a lot for tuning in again. And until next week, you've been listening to Rue Chater and the Intriguing Beings podcast.